0: back to the EDM Podcast. My name is Connor O'Brien. If you're new here, this is a show where we interview artists, producers, and industry experts, anyone who we feel can help you grow as a producer. In this episode, I have a chat with Slippy. Slippy is an electronic music producer based in Florida, who's well known for his popular releases on Monster Cat. Now, if you wish the guests on this podcast dove a bit deeper into the technical aspects of production, this is going to be the episode for you. We start with Slippy's background, looking at how he built up his production knowledge from scratch. We talk about the small producer group that he's a part of, which he attributes a lot of his success to. He discusses why it's so important to have other artists to grow with, not just from a promotional standpoint, but both to learn and to gain motivation from. On the production side, Slippy dives deep into the technical aspects of his production workflow. He discusses the synths and effects that he uses for sound design, and his approach to creating sounds from scratch. He breaks down his full layering process and he also offers his best advice for leveling up your mixing workflow. Later on, he talks about his current writing workflow, which helps him to get down solid ideas quickly, which ultimately helps him finish more music. He also discusses separating sound design and production and how he resamples ideas from his own music and also from sample packs. Overall, this is an info packed episode that I'm stoked for you all to check out. One last thing, Slippy has a remix coming out tomorrow for Julia's track Virtual Friends. It's on there a Promises Made remix package, which you should all go check out, especially because I've got a remix on there too. I'll play you a preview of Slippy's Virtual Friends remix as we slide to the interview because it's a really great track and so you can get a feel for his music. That's all for now. I hope everybody's staying safe and healthy out there with the coronavirus situation. Otherwise, let's wrap things up and get to the interview. Here's the EDM Podcast with Slippy. Hey. Welcome back to the EDM Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Alex, releases under the name Slippy. Alex, how are you doing today? Doing well. How about you? Not too bad. So to start, I'd like to learn a bit more about your background with music. You can go back as far as you like, but I'd like to learn what got you into music and more specifically, music production.
1: Yeah. Well, I think for me, music has very much always been a part of my life. I think that's the case for a lot of people. Yeah. You know, I remember like being a kid and my dad would make like mix CDs of, you know, all these random songs he found and, you know. It's always videos of me dancing around as a kid. So I think like dance music in particular has always been something that has been like a part of me, whether or not I've like been consciously aware of that or not. But, you know, that that's definitely always been a part of my life. And I started actually like getting involved with music. I played a little bit of piano, just piano lessons, because I think, you know, my parents thought, well, hey, it's a good idea, get them involved in music a little bit. I have a sister. We she also did piano lessons. So I was doing that for a while, and that was a nice way to kind of get started in the world of music. Uh, From there, I moved on to playing percussion in my school band. And I mean, I kept doing that basically like until last year. I went all the way through college. Yeah, I mean, I have been did percussion for a very long time. I started off um, at the very end of grade school and continued doing that through um, basically my entire life. I've been playing percussion for over a decade. I also did a little bit of guitar here and there. Just because I think every kid wants to like be a rock star at some point in their yeah. life. <laughs> so, you know, got a guitar, played some, you know, Metallica tabs, but like, oh yeah, dude, this is sick. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I really liked playing music with other people. And that was, you know, something that I really enjoyed. And at a certain point, I was like, well, I want to like make music, but I don't know anyone else that's like as involved in this you know, from like maybe like a rock perspective. Cause that's what I was really into at the time was you know, rock music, metal, all that kind of stuff. You know, I mean, being in middle school, that's like the coolest stuff there is at the time. Um, So I was super into that. I was listening to bands like, you know, like a Atreyu, Disturbed, like Bring Me the Horizon, things like that. And I just thought it was awesome. But I didn't really have anyone to play this music with or write this music with. So it, I never really considered it to be an option. I would just, you know, play some, you know, drum set here and there along to these songs, maybe learn some tabs. And that was about the extent of it. Yeah. But at a certain point, I I think it was, like, on Facebook or something, I saw, like, Skrillex, rock and roll will take you to the mountain. I'm like, <laughs> I like rock and roll, so I'm going to listen to that. <laughs> and so I pull it up and I listen to it, and I'm like, well, this isn't rock at all, but, like, it hits that same nerve as, like, yeah. rock music, metal music, and I was like, oh, this is awesome. Like, I really like this, and I started checking out some other stuff, and pretty quickly I realized, oh, well, you can make this all on your own if you just have a computer and some software, so... Immediately I'm like, well, I want to see what I can do with this. I think like within a week I was, you know, trying to make like dubstep with like some like YouTube tutorials and like whatever samples I could find with like the default FL Studio drums and things like that. (laughs) So I mean, that was definitely where it started for me was I think it kind of progressed from I was playing this classical stuff to I, you know, got involved in listening to rock music and wanting to play that and make that and then eventually like finding that little like connective click between the worlds of rock and dubstep or like heavier EDM, I suppose. Totally. I think there's an energy
0: that crosses over between the two of them, like a energy and vibe that obviously like the sounds themselves are quite different, but there's a lot of crossover that I think makes people kind of jump in between
1: the heavier side of EDM and metal. hmm hundred percent. I mean, you look at any of the shows that are happening nowadays and it's way more clear than it was even then, you know? You yeah. Have- mosh pits at every show walls of death like it the culture is very much crossed over so how old
0: were you when you were first picking up production
1: yeah I was um I was going into like my freshman year of high school I think was when I first started trying to mess around with it so I I don't know how old that is year-wise but it's been about like it's so hard to like look back and think about that I'm not sure (laughs) yeah but I believe it was about like you know eight or nine years ago was when I was first starting to mess around with that and figure it out I'm guessing, did you have anyone around you that was producing or into electronic music, or were you just kind of off on your own for that? No, yeah, no one else was really producing. I had to, you know, try to find the communities online that I thought were, you know, into that. And yeah. I had some friends here and there that would like listen to the songs and be like, yeah, this is pretty cool. And eventually I had some friends that, you know, were like really into that music as well, but I didn't know anyone else that was producing. I knew a couple of people that did like, you know, rap beats and things like that here and there but I didn't know them super well. I just like knew of them in the area. Yeah. Yeah. So those communities were like almost exclusively online for me. It was like, you know, Oh, I'm going to go on, you know, the UKF comments or I'm going to go on like (laughs) plug.dj. And like, if you remember that, I was like, Oh yeah. 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 Uh huh. Yeah. Go on there. And like, you know, Oh, I really want to put on this tune that I love and like, see if everyone else likes it. And, you know, just like finding those like connective tissues, I suppose. Totally. And it's, are you about like 25 years old?
0: uh yeah i'm 23 yeah it sounds like we were both in that same era of like 2009 2010 where it just hadn't really cracked into the mainstream not in a good or a bad way but mm-hmm. most of those communities was the same for me i was really the only person in my grade that was anywhere remotely interested in electronic music at yeah. least beyond like the very tops like the avicis of the world but mm-hmm. yeah like the online was kind of where you went you can still go there now obviously but um yeah definitely different
1: style and generation now oh 100 percent. yeah i mean i think now it's like plenty of people listen to dance music I remember I went to college and I was like shocked at the amount of people that were like also into that music and I was like, yeah and now I'm sure that's I'm sure it's the case in you know high schools and middle schools things like that it's mm-hmm. definitely more mainstream than it was at the time but I definitely think when I got into it it was like right at that point when it was hitting the mainstream mm-hmm. I mean you had like Skrillix like put out what it was like Bangarang EP or something and like I feel like everyone heard that at least
0: yeah so you said that you got like an FL Studio demo, kind of started making some dubstep tracks around your freshman year of high school. What did you do past that to kind of grow your production skills?
1: Yeah, I mean, I definitely just dove into a lot of YouTube tutorials, a lot of just as much information as I could find online, really, just because I was yeah so interested in this. And I would listen to tracks and be like, how did they do that sound? How does that sound so good? You know, and you want to you try to figure this stuff out. It's very much like a thirst for knowledge, I suppose. Yeah. So... I was going online, you know, trying to find as much information as I could. And, you know, eventually I saw that there was like some Facebook group or something that this guy was looking to make just of other producers and, you know, a little like small promotional channel. And so I, I sent him some of the stuff I was working on and he's like, Oh, you know, I really like this. And then, you know, I had this group going with a bunch of producers and maybe add you into that. And that became this little group we had called Sharestep, And it was just like a group of maybe like 20 of us, 25 of us. And, we would all be like chatting all the time online and just facebook messenger posting works in progress in that little like private group and giving each other feedback helping each other um grow not just audience wise but production wise yeah i think that's like so so valuable like i don't think i would still be making music without that group really because like it was like you know a release came out and we were all excited about it we could all talk about it online you know just like how did they do that how they do that or like our friend made this crazy tune and like, he's our friend. So we can ask him, how did you do that? You know? Yeah. <laughs> it, it was definitely a really great way to do that. And as this is all happening too, this is a promotional channel. So, you know, we we're putting out songs, we put out little like mini compilations and, you know, created a small audience for ourselves through that as well.
0: Yeah. I think that is such a crucial thing. And you kind of said you wouldn't be where you are now if it weren't for that. And I just want to reiterate how crucial that is. Because I think a lot of people are isolated in their communities, whether or not having an online group of producers or in person group of producers. And there's nothing more beneficial than having people around you. And like I know this firsthand from our um, EDM Prod Facebook group, we've got about 5,000 people in there. And it's tough when you get a group that big to really get like a tight knit cohort of producers. But if you have 5, 10, 15, or 20, something where it's like big enough that you've got a lot of people to learn from, but not so big that you don't feel accountable to put music and like support each other. So I think that is a crucial thing that everyone listening to this podcast is trying to get better. should think about trying to find those smaller, really motivated groups of producers
1: to build around. Oh, 100%. I mean, yeah, I mean, that group in particular, we were like basically all really good friends as well. It wasn't like it was, you know, oh, this is a networking group and this is for networking. It was like, no, we were all just like friends who happened to be into the same music and we're making similar music. Mm -hmm. and i think that was really beneficial too it didn't feel like oh i you know i'm just gonna this is a group i'm just gonna dump my song into and maybe i'll get a couple more plays it was like no we were like it was a real community there for sure and i think that's important i think that's something that does matter when you're starting these things out and it's something i try to recommend to people when they're asking you know how can i grow it's like well if you get that small group it's gonna make a huge huge difference i mean you know one of the guys in there actually like mixed the Mixed the first song i put out underneath my like new like latest project you know it yeah. was like the first song that came out and i don't think like if he hadn't mixed that i don't know if it would have got signed because the version before he mixed it was not as good <laughs> so yeah you know, it's really helpful i mean i still keep up with those guys you know i still see him every once in a while you know like i was at edc orlando just like watching everything and one of my friends was playing it and you know just hung out with him for the evening and you know it's just nice knowing that You have that group that like it's not affected by like industry politics or whatever else is going on. It's like these are your friends that are inside this world, but it's not like just not like that, you know?
0: Totally. And I think there's so many benefits. Like you were saying, there's the promotion, which is kind of the obvious one. There's the feedback, there's the learning from each other. And there's also like the friendship accountability aspect. It's like great to have other producers that are going through the same struggles that you are. And for a lot of people, that's just getting your music to a professional point. So it's nice to have those people Mm -hmm. around you because I don't know, it's a different type of connection. Like, I feel like I connect differently with my producer friends than I do with my non-producer friends. And it's important for me to have both. Yeah, for sure. So were you releasing under the Slippy Project when you were in that group?
1: No, I wasn't. It was uh a I mean, I'm still in that group. It's just not as active as it used to be. But yeah, yeah I was releasing under a different name at the time for sure.
0: So, when did you first think about kind of rebranding and relaunching the Slippy project?
1: Yeah, I think I had been producing music for about four years under this name, like MIA. And, you know, at the time I made that project, I wasn't really thinking about anything, you know, career wise, branding wise. It was in the back of my mind that, you know, maybe this could eventually be a career, you know, growing an audience and everything. You know, it's the YouTube era. A lot of people were creating audiences seemingly out of thin air at the time. And so I thought, you know, if I'm just, you know, doing what I want to do and putting things out there, maybe it'll, you know, hit a nerve with people. Maybe it'll end up being something that I can make an actual living at some point. But at a certain point, I realized I had kind of peaked where I could go with this project. I mean, first of all, I had the name MIA, which is another artist's name. (laughs) Yeah, that's your issue right there. I tried making it an acronym, but, you know, I mean. I was still branding everything as MIA, so it's a little confusing for sure. And I think I finally realized that I'd also made you know a batch of songs that I was like, well, these sound a little above what I put out before. Mm-hmm. And I want to start having some sort of like connective tissue going on with the yeah. releases and with the branding and all that. So when I had the song divided and that was all done, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to figure out a name for this project. And I you know brainstormed with that group and with some other people and eventually came up with the name. I got a logo. I came up with a you know kind of initial brand image that I thought I was going to go with, and then I had the song uploaded privately, and I pretty much just hail mary sent it over to Monstercat. <laughs> like yeah. I had no connections, but they have a they have a label submit, and you can just upload your song, write a little blurb about it, and just you know hope for the best. And thankfully, they ended up liking it. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So I mean it wasn't it was kind of interesting actually because I think they took almost exactly a month to get back to me. And my thought that I had to myself was I was like, okay, well, I haven't released any labels before and this is a label I've been into forever, so it'd be awesome to release with them. But there was a part of me that was like, I don't know if they're ever gonna get back to me or what. So I was like, okay, if I don't hear back from them within a month, I'm just gonna like figure out my own like self-release for this and go from mm-hmm. there. And literally on the very last day of that, I got an email back being like, hey, we love the tune. We'd love to sign it. Jeez. <laughs> so funny. Yeah.
0: So do you think, I mean, I think that's kind of the goal or dream for a lot of people. Like right away, mm-hmm. they haven't released any music. Immediately they can get a track or record signed to their favorite label. Do you think it was just the music? Do you think the fact that you had your branding kind of figured out and dialed in was important? Do you think you could have done that on your previous project? Kind of talk on that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think in that case i was trying to think about okay what's going to be interesting for them here you know if i sent them that song and it was on this older project where i had a ton of like random releases scattered the branding was all over the place mm-hmm. nothing really made mm-hmm. a whole lot of sense i think they would look at that and be like is this an as an artist as a whole is this someone who we want to get involved with yeah and for me i was like you know i want to have i want them to know that like i want to have all these things so for me i was like let's just put this under a different name and i think it would be exciting to launch this project with this label. And for them, I know that I know for a fact that they were confused because they got <laughs> it and they really liked the song. They're like, well, who is this guy? You know, he has zero followers, zero following. He has no tracks. Like they at least just wanted to get on a call and talk with me. It wasn't they weren't initially going to just sign the record. It wasn't like I got yeah. that email and I got a contract. It was like yeah. they were like, hey, we're interested. Let's hop on a call. And so we hopped on a call and, you know, I gave them a little bit of my background and I like, well, do you have any other music you're working on? And I had a couple songs, but I know my laptop had died like right around that time. So I, you know, I couldn't really do much with them. Mm-hmm. Like they were they were done, but they needed more mixing, they needed some tweaking. So I kinda just had to bin those. And so yeah. <laughs> there was a period of like six months where I was just going back and forth with them, like sending them demos, talking about branding ideas, you talking, you know, figuring out some potential artwork for things. And eventually they're like, All right, there's enough stuff here. Let's go ahead and do it. So so that track was enough to get their attention, but
0: then he built that relationship and rapport with them after to kind of set the foundation for the relationship you've had with them for the past five years now.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think if you're pitching to labels, you have to understand that, you know, they need something of value, not necessarily just from the music, but as a whole, they want someone who they can work with for a decent amount of time. Exactly. Yeah. So I know I completely understand why they were looking for more music. They're like, cool. We like this song, but like, if this is the only good song you're ever going to make, why are we going to launch your project? You know? Yeah. So it was definitely important that I had, uh, there was an EP that came out a little later, a little later that year. And those two songs were the ones that I was, you know, kind of going back and forth with them on just like, Hey, here's what I'm working on. And we figured those out and eventually got those out. And then from there, it was a little bit of a quicker working relationship with just, Hey, I have a song. Do you guys like it or not? And then we put it out from there.
0: I think that's a crucial piece of advice for anyone. That is like almost at that point where they're ready to reach out to those bigger labels. Mm -hmm. Kind of like you were saying, labels love brands. If they're big enough, they don't just want to sign you for one track because there's not a whole lot of value in that. But if they can sign you on for a track and then an EP and then something else, and you give them the impression that you're going to be in the industry for a while, they're going to be more likely to want to work with you. And I think one of the best ways that you show that early on is just by having a stack of tracks like we just had that on the uh, previous podcast that I recorded, this artist had like 40 songs that he was sending out to managers and labels. And they were extremely impressed by that. Cause like, okay, this guy is here to stay. He's got music for two years to release.
1: Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, they have the work ethic. They have the good music. They have the good branding. It's like, it's like, you're ticking off all these boxes that are appealing exactly. to the label. And I mean, I don't think you like need to necessarily make a list and tick off all those boxes yourself, but it is good to like, kind of mentally go through that in your head before you send to a label be like, well, am I hitting these things or could I be doing something a little better? You know, I think that's good just as an artist in general, you should be hitting those boxes.
0: Totally. And the other way that I think about it is the less work you create for them, the better. If they don't have to worry about your branding, they don't have to worry about your artwork, your artist name, your social media and all they have to do is promote your music. They're gonna put so many more resources behind that and they're gonna be overall just more excited to sign your um you know an EP or a single because of that. It's less work for them.
1: Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, I was lucky that they were willing to work with me on the branding side of things and, you know, hearing out more songs I was working on and everything, because they were definitely pretty hands-on early on, which is helping me out with that stuff. And I think it had to do with, you know, five years ago the label wasn't as much of a monster as it is now, no pun intended. I (laughs) just realized I did that. Yeah, no pun intended. I mean, (laughs) they were a great label and I love them, but they've clearly grown over the time. I don't know if I did that all now, if they would be willing to give me the time of day on that because they're taking submissions from huge artists at this point, you know?
0: Yeah. So you got that first Divided track signed to them. You had your first EP. Kind of talk about your growth from then speeding up towards where you're at now with your artist project?
1: Yeah, so... It was actually, you know, when I had that song come out with them, it was actually the same day as my high school graduation, funny enough. (laughs) So that was, there was a lot going on that day. But um, yeah, you know, so I tried to write a lot of music over the time that I was, you know, in between high school and college and figure that out. But I was definitely a lot slower at writing back then. I would spend, you know, months on songs and, you know, being really nitpicky with whether or not I liked it and whether or not these sounds were working. So when I got to college, I realized I have even less time on my hands now. Like, how is this going to work? And there's definitely a little stressful period of me, you know, wanting to make music and wanting to put it out, but having to balance that with college life and homework and just everything in general. So, you know, I was making music whenever I could, but you know, there was definitely a period there where I was only able to put stuff out every couple months. So, thankfully, then ended up I ended up having songs that I liked and that they liked that came out. But the growth really was just you know, a matter of continuing to put things out and continuing to keep people engaged on social media and all that. I know that the biggest song I had early on was uh, Wi-Fi tears with my friend Mika. Yeah. I mean, I, we literally, he was one of the guys from, uh, the share step group I was talking about previously. And, you know, I really had loved his music for a long time and I was like, well, we should, you know, make something for sure. So we got started on it, came together really quickly. And I think that was, Sort of a, you know, sort of clicked in my head. I'm like, wait a minute. I've been like sitting around here working on tunes for like months and months, like, you know, <laughs> rehashing ideas and doing all this stuff. And this one, and actually the song before it too, came together within like, you know, weeks, days, like really short periods of time. And I think that's when I realized I'm yeah. like, it's really important to get your initial ideas down like quickly when you're starting. You know, okay. like, I, I don't think yeah. you should. It's good to like have eight bars that are really, really awesome. But making a skeleton of a track and being able to go, well, I really like the idea here. Now all I have to do is like beef it up a bit. That was something yeah. that was a big shift for me, and I definitely fell out of it a couple of times. I mean I would still do the thing where I would have a song, and you know maybe the idea wasn't the greatest, but I was gonna keep working on it because well, I only have so much time you know every week to work on music, I need to just yeah. like finish something. but the growth I think you know it came from. Releasing with the same label for a while and having, you know, a dedicated fan base. It also came from just putting out a good quantity of music, keeping some variety, trying to have some collaborations that I thought were interesting, you know, that were exciting to me and that were also exciting for the fan base as well.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And also just working on, I think, social media presence as well. Just, you know, trying to be consistent um, with that, trying to interact with people whenever possible. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that you had that early on collaboration
0: with one of your friends from the group and just kind of like looking at your Spotify, you do a lot of collaborations. Is that, why is that such an essential part of the releases that you have?
1: Yeah, I think, well, I think the reason that happened, it wasn't necessarily like, I need to have a bunch of collaborations or like, I think that collaboration is going to be a big part of this. I think for me, it just happened to be that being that I was as busy as I was, having collaborations you know was a way for me to get my own original music done while also having some other stuff going on as well yeah i mean not that the collaborations are not original music but i know i do think there's a difference between a solo release and a collaborative release um and having someone to work with allows those ideas to flow a lot faster i find you know it allows you to get some immediate feedback on whether or not it actually sounds good or not, you know. Yeah, yeah. The, you yeah. know those roadblocks that you hit when you're working on a song on your own, you literally have someone to turn to, and you can collectively figure out. Well, is this going in the right direction? Does this sound good? Do we want to do this here? You know, it. I think that collaborations can allow you to get music out faster. Sometimes.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting that you mentioned that kind of in the space of you being in college and not having as much time like those, those collaborations can make your time more efficient so that you can release more music, especially when you already had your foot in the door, had your first couple tracks with Monster Cat and knew, hey, I might need to leverage some other artists and just get through this process quicker so that I can finish more music because I've got school going on.
1: Yeah. And I don't even know if it was a conscious decision necessarily. I think that, you know, I was working on my music and then I would start up a collaboration with someone and I, you know, I didn't want to waste their time. So I would try to get my parts done in a you know relatively reasonable amount of time. I wouldn't (laughs) sit on it for months and months. So I I think it was sort of like just ended up happening that way. I definitely wasn't like, oh man, I haven't put anything out. I need to start collaborating with people so I can like, you know, just like churn out tunes. It definitely wasn't that. But I do think that it ended up working in that way without me even realizing it.
0: Yeah. And that's a funny idea too. You saying like having somebody else that I have to report to, quote unquote, with a a collaboration makes me work harder. Because I think I'm definitely the same way where if let's just say I'm working on a track, I can push it to the side. But if somebody that I'm collaborating with is like, hey, we need let's get a demo by Friday. I'm going to work way harder because I don't want to disappoint them. It's almost like tricking yourself into working on more music and finishing more music because you have somebody else that's... Um to an extent holding you accountable.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I mean that's a big part of it. And yeah, and you can do the same thing, you know, back to the other person that you're working with. If, you know, it's been like a couple of weeks and you haven't heard anything. You're like, hey, like, what's going on? Can we like stay yeah. here? You know, we I'm trying to get this out by blanket blank, or, you know, I'm gonna send out this package to a label and I wanna include this song in it. And you know, you have all these external not I don't want to say pressures necessarily, but you know, yeah, there's someone else that you hopefully don't want to let down on the other side. you know. motivators. (laughs) Exactly, yeah.
0: So I want to jump into production, but before we do that, I just kind of want to wrap up your background just to catch ourselves um, up to speed with where you're at right now. So you said that you recently finished college earlier?
1: Yeah, I finished um, almost a year ago now, actually. Mm -hmm. Uh, Last May. What did you get your degree in? I got my degree in commercial music. So it was you know, music recording, um, a little bit of music business. It was a lot of basically what I'm doing now. Um, but you know, when you're in college and you're in a music school, it's required that you have a principal instrument and that you take all these basic music classes as well. So, you know, I was taking theory, I was taking music history and during all that I was playing in, you know, bands and orchestras and percussion ensembles and things like that. Um, as well as, you know, having, you know, general ed courses, I also had a business minor. So I was taking some business classes as well.
0: Cool. That major and minor while working on production on the side. I can see why you were so busy. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So um, are you doing commercial music now or what are you doing from like a full-time work situation?
1: Yeah, uh, full-time work is uh, just music, thankfully. Um, Yeah. You know, everything I do is music related. Um, For the most part, I focus on my own productions. Um, I also do some sample work on the side um, for some various companies just here and there. um and that's a good way just to supplement my income um without necessarily you know putting in having to go out and get like a part-time job or anything like that and it allows me to work from home just you know schedule myself as to what i'm going to be doing and go from there awesome sweet so let's kind of slide things over into production
0: a lot of things that i want to talk about and i'm sure a lot of your fans listening will want me to ask about your base design so um, kind of like first off, what does your sound design process look like when you're designing bases for your drops?
1: Yeah, my sound design process um for a while there was very much just like throwing paint at the wall, kinda yeah. like I would just hop in and just you know mess with some wave tables, throw stuff around, just wait until I got something interesting going on um and I think that's the thing that a lot of people do um nowadays it's been a lot different. Right now, it's been a lot more of kind of sticking to basics. So I still use Serum like almost 90% of the time for everything. Um, Not necessarily for the breaks as much. Um, For breaks and all that, I like to go to Omnisphere and, you know, contact or things like that. Yeah. But for base design, it's almost exclusively Serum. And I used to use all these complicated wavetables and try to like FM from B and do all this (laughs) stuff. And I found it got like really messy. I had a lot of trouble like getting interesting sounds like because i i wanted to have like these really crazy bass sounds but i was like i can't seem to tame these i don't know what like what's going on here Mm -hmm. and so my i guess my workaround for that has been recently i've just been working with like basic shapes like almost exclusively yeah so you know you're using your like sine wave square wave saw wave all that stuff and you know maybe a little bit like a little bit of fm here and there messing with the various uh filter modes that you have on each oscillator so better minus plus sync things like that yeah just to mess with the timbre of the sound um and i just try to get you know, like a pretty basic sound to start with something that i'm like well i like the tone of this i like how it could fit into the drop and then you know write the drop from there with all these sounds that i've made and then if i listen back and i'm like well i don't think it's interesting enough then i can always go back and add some more effects or change a wavetable here and there and try to make it more interesting but I find that doing that allows me to not get stuck as quickly. Yeah, Because if you're sitting there and you're trying, you're like, okay, I'm at my drop. What am I going to do? And then you spend the next two hours trying <laughs> to make an impact bass sound. Then you're going you're gonna to get stuck. Because you have all this momentum leading up into this section of the song. And then you spend four hours on beat one of the drop. And it's like, well, where is that going? I have no idea now. Yeah. And that can be cool, but I, I don't find it to be as useful. I mean, pretty much all of my beat ones of the drop recently have just been like a really distorted square wave and like mm-hmm. maybe like a horn or something. Just like really basic, like here's an impact. Okay, now we're gonna get to like the main idea of the song. Yeah. And like from there you can do that. Um another thing that I found really useful is I've been saving a lot of my patches recently. Um also saving you know, bass sounds I made from previous songs, just rendering them out to audio and things like that. Um, and that gives me a library of sounds to pull from and mess with. I mean, you can always resample your own sounds Mm -hmm. and you can resample other people's samples too. I mean, splice is a great resource. There's nothing wrong with pulling in a bass sound and being like, okay, well I like this, but you know, maybe I don't want to use just the, you know, box in sound. Maybe I want to like mess with this and you can warp it especially with ableton the warp modes are fantastic you know i love using texture warp and really messing up a sound and then chopping it up and bringing it back together into something that sounds a little more i don't know cohesive makes a little more sense but yeah that can give you a crazy sound without having to have like four or five hours of sound design before you go into it and because i think getting into that flow state is so important for writing a drop in particular Mm because so much of what matters in a drop isn't like oh man, that's the craziest bass sound I've ever heard. It's like, how does it feel? How does it make you want to move? Yeah, You know, are you actually like vibing with this at all?
0: Totally. And I think I almost kind of had that down as like a no. I think a lot of people listening might initially disagree with that. And I agree mm-hmm. with you, but I think a lot of people might be like, hey, my favorite dubstep artists, I like them because they have the best sound design. So wouldn't it make sense yeah. for me to start with five hours of sound
1: design? What would you say to that? To that, I would say I totally get that. I mean, I definitely feel that way. There's a lot of producers I listen to and I'm like, I don't even understand how they did that. I think it sounds awesome. But for me, if I'm in like writing mode, I kind of like to think of like writing mode as something different from sound design mode. So some, sometimes I like to sit down and just have sessions in Ableton where all I'm doing is sound designing or like mm-hmm. I spend a day and I go through a bunch of tutorials and I learn new techniques and I try to apply them and I render, I render out all my sounds and I have those to go to. Yeah, I think that's a better way of doing it because then you can have all of your crazy sounds that you made. Plus you can have that flow that you want from writing. Yeah, and that's a good way to do it. Personally for me, I I like having the crazy sounds, but I don't like having them as the core of what I write anymore. Like I like using them as little flares here and there, but for the most part I'm focused on well, how does this feel? Do I like the melody that's going on in the drop or anything like that? And going from there and the songs that I have that have really crazy sound design is probably because I did one of those sessions yeah. beforehand and then went into it.
0: Um, we had an Icon Collective instructor on one of our previous podcasts, and he kind of talked about this idea of sound design over a beat, which is something that a lot of producers should really steer away from. And we mm-hmm. kind of talked about, you talked about that bangering EP earlier. Yes, like the sound design and energy of it was brand new, but the songwriting, Presented things in such a beautiful and unique and interesting way, and that's what really gravitates you towards that. So, sound design can really only get you so far, even in a very science, uh, a very sound design focused genre like a dubstep.
1: Hundred percent, yeah. And I think those sounds, the songs from that EP in particular, you know, they have that staying power. They stand the test of time because they have good writing. Yeah, it's not a matter of you can't you can't outweigh writing with sound design, like. I guess in certain genres you can, but for what I do at least, I find that you need to have both. You need to have some sort of pairing of both, or else. Yeah. I don't know if it's going to click as much because I mean, you want to have good songwriting for any general listener, but you also want to have those crazy sounds for your fans that are super into, you know, dubstep, and they like those crazy sounds. I mean, I like yeah. those crazy sounds too, but I want to have that mix of things for sure.
0: Totally I think all of the best producers that I can think of in terms of sound design also are really great catchy songwriters, like a Matzo or a Noisia. like all of them can write a really high quality song alongside their creativity and experimentation when it comes to sound design. Exactly.
1: And I think it's easy to overlook that if you're like just getting into the genre because what stands out the most is going to be, "I've never heard a sound like that before." but then if you look, go and look into it, you'd be like, "Oh, well, you know, it is that pairing of things that's what may have actually caught your ear." Or at least I can say that's what it is for me. I, I can't say if that's the case for everyone, but that's what no, I found.
0: I, no, I think that's a super valuable piece of advice. And also to like build off of what initially got you into producing electronic music. I think a lot of people get stuck in the certain sounds or genres of what got them into electronic music when they're not thinking about the overall energy and vibe that should be driving them. Because, you know, let's just say... Um, I'm trying to think of like an early song that really got me like Sebastian and Grosso's calling was just like a progressive house song, very 2012, like a Swedish house mafia style song. And just because that was one of the early songs that inspired me to create electronic music, doesn't mean I need to be using the same exact kind of progressive house, super and side chaining in every song I do. I like the energy. I like the emotion. I can build off of that with a distinct palette to get whatever I want across. Yeah, exactly.
1: Completely agree with that. So
0: you talked about Serum being uh, kind of one of your main synths for generating sounds. Do you have any tools or plugins that you like to use in post to process those?
1: Yeah, I would say my go-to is like Camel Crusher. I know that that's a legacy plugin. I think you can still get it on Splice, I believe, has it for free. Okay. Um, If you go into their plugins category, and that's just a really good distortion plugin. I find myself using that all the time. I mean, just like if you have a single bass sound and you don't think it sounds you know, fat enough, just open that up, put it on British Clean. You're probably good to go now. <laughs> like it's really that simple. Yeah. And you know, I think that makes it nice and easy. Um having those go-to plugins. To make things more interesting, one that I've really liked recently has been Crystallizer. Yeah. Um, I mean if you have a sound that you're like, I like this, but it just needs a little something, that's a great thing that you can use. You can throw it on. It's a granular effect plugin. So what you do is you put it on and you can choose okay, I want these grains to be an octave up, let's say, and I want them to come in 40 milliseconds after the main sound. And what I like to do in particular is filter those because if you just leave them going, they get a little messy. So um, I'll put on a crystallizer and set it to where I like, find an interesting kind of tone with that um, and use that in parallel. So I'll have the dry sound going through, and then I'll have the sound going through with crystallizer with a different EQ and maybe I have like a, a notch filter going, like if it's a wobble, for example, like I think I did that in the virtual friends remix, actually. Um, in the second half of the drop, there's a bit of a wobble bass. Mm-hmm. And there's a little bit of crystallizer on that because I just didn't think it was interesting enough as is. And I have that filter moving with the actual serum filter as well. So it really stands out whenever it gets to the peak of the, each individual wobble. Yeah, Um, And that way it's not just hanging over the whole thing and sounding super messy, but it allows you to get some uh, interesting tones out of a sound that you might not be able to get just by uh, messing with the serum patch on its own.
0: Totally. And I think that's a good way to build off of the kind of clean foundation of serum, which almost goes back to what you were saying earlier with nowadays kind of avoiding complicated wavetables like sticking with that clean sound and then doing things in parallel alongside that to just bring out more interesting tones with like a crystallizer i like to just throw on really any type of pitch shifting plugin like the little altar boy is really popular not yeah. just on vocals but people like duplicate their bass layer pitch it up an octave play with the formants and then carve that in with an eq to get just what you want out of that tone
1: yeah exactly i think there's a lot you can do with post-processing to make sounds more interesting yeah. And that's, you know, like I was talking with Serum, I mean, you could do the same thing with the filters, you know, put on, yeah. like, you have a really simple base, and then get like two flangers going on and you can make something really weird happen just mm-hmm. with the tones you're getting out of those. Like there, there's a ton you can do just with basic wavetables and then putting on effects if you know what you're doing with those effects. Or even if you're just messing around, you make something cool. I mean, hey, no one's going to fault you for that. (laughs) Totally. So I want to talk about your Virtual Friends remix in a
0: second. But before that, I just want to touch on the idea of adding movement to bass sounds. You talked about phasers and flangers. I think one thing that I hear in a lot of kind of more intermediate dubstep tracks where there might be a solid idea, but there just isn't enough movement in their drops and just kind of to their core bass elements. So do you have anything that you generally do to just add more movement and development to your sounds and
1: to your sections? So I think with my sound design in particular, um, I like to start, like I said, with those basic sounds. Um, as far as getting movement, I mean, all you really need to do is mess with the effects. Put them like on like 100%. And pull it to somewhere where you like and be like, okay, well, I like that tone. That sounds cool. Then you can just pull it back and maybe even put an LFO on that. So, okay, that sounds only gonna come in um at the like end of every four bars of this sound, or it's only gonna come in um, you know, at the end of each like two beats or something. There's a lot of ways that you can mess with the variants just using the LFOs in serum. Um, I know that another thing you can do as well, just for variety, I like doing reverb throws. Um, mm-hmm. you know you're at the end of a section and then you just take your reverb that you have on that sound and throw it all the way up to 100 right at the very end and then cut it down to zero right at the end of the beat and that kind of makes it it just gives you a swell effect and i think that can create some more intrigue to the sound and that's not even necessarily a sound design thing i think that's just a good technique um just to keep the energy moving in a drop Um, also another thing you can do is layering. That's something I've been finding myself doing quite a bit nowadays. Um, so like, say you have a nice long, like saw wave over, uh, sound over, uh, a couple beats. So you have a long, like not necessarily a saw, but just a nice deep bass going on there. And you're like, okay, well, that's cool. And I like where that's going, but like, it just needs a little something. You can just put a very similar type of sound on top of that, maybe even duplicate that Mess with a couple parameters and then, okay, I'm going to put that on like a 16th note pattern or like a 16th note triplet pattern and like pull it down a little bit. And now you have this variation of a sound. So it's going to meld with this other one pretty well that you just had. Yeah. To compress those two together. And now you have a little bit of movement in that sound that might not even necessarily be like super apparent to the listener, Mm -hmm. but you know, it just adds that little something that it needed. So it doesn't sound like you have this really dry sound in the song.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think so many things that you're saying right now are ways to build off of strong sounds that aren't that interesting and to give them more interesting tones and textures, which it seems like is the core part of your, you know, sound design and production process right now. Where you just, you know, you take something that you know works, um, you could apply this to songwriting, you know, take a very basic chord progression and do a couple things to kind of give it just enough spice and flair to make it interesting to the listener.
1: Yeah, exactly. There's nothing wrong with starting with what you know works. Like you don't need to reinvent the wheel every single time you sit down. And I'm sure some people will think that's bad advice, but (laughs) I do I mean I agree with you. (laughs) Okay. As someone who's written like a lot of songs, I mean I've been doing this for about like nine years now. I think if you sit down and try to reinvent the wheel every single time you start working, you're gonna end up frustrated most of the time. Yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with sitting down and being like okay well i'm going to start with this baseline because i know this baseline works and then i'll harmonize it maybe a little differently than i normally would or i'm going to use this different sound than maybe i would it's good to have some starting points and you can always go from there um i don't think you need to come in and you know start by sound designing a keyboard every single time that you want to make a piano riff you know and I think that just goes back to this idea that you've touched on a bunch throughout this episode,
0: which is efficiency. Efficiency with collaborations, efficiency with starting songs, efficiency when doing sound design, just thinking about, is this the best way that I can be doing this? What do I want my end result to be? If it's to produce as much music as I can and get um, you know more music signed and released, I should be more efficient about all of the different processes that I have for creating.
1: Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. Another part of it too is I think a lot of producers get stuck on worrying about what and you know another producer is going to think about their music or worrying what the audience is going to think about the music before they've even written anything. And that's, I mean, I think that's what helps me. That's what where this comes from for me is like, I just want to not have to worry about that. And you know, if I'm sitting down and I'm the first thing I'm thinking is, oh no, like, this kind of sounds like this other song I wrote. Are people like going to hate that because of that? And it's like there you go, you've completely stopped your creative flow right there. So that's why I have these ideas, I think, is just just allow myself to get over those creative blocks. Because I think, for me at least, that's where the majority of the blocks come from, is worrying about external factors that may or may not even come into play at the end of the day. It's like your writing process is for your writing process, and you should just allow yourself to do whatever feels right in that time. And then you can be all analytical about it afterwards. No one's stopping you from doing that. But I think when you try to bring in the analytical side to things as you're writing a song, it can be counterproductive.
0: Would you say that that's a mindset that you've developed over time? 100%.
1: Yeah. Because, I mean, like I said, I used to take months to write a song. And I think a lot of it did come down to that, that I was like wondering if it was good enough and wondering if, you know, is this complicated enough? Is this too simple? Do I need to like redo this section? Um and I think I think that just resulted in me not making as much music as I wanted to and maybe yeah. not enjoying it as much as I could have. And you know, no that doesn't mean that those songs that came out, I dislike those songs. I like everything <laughs> I put out, yeah. don't get me wrong. But <laughs> you know, I think I think it's nice to not get stuck in those ruts as you're writing the songs and you know, just try to allow yourself to have yeah. fun as much as you possibly can. You don't need to like be beating yourself up. It's I know that some people are like, Well, I'm my own worst critic, and it's like, yeah, that's like cool. But at a certain point, I still want to enjoy yeah. myself while I'm writing music. Like, yeah, I, I
0: think you can be critical. You can be a perfectionist. But you have to learn how to um, control that just enough so that you can still have fun with it, which is often where the music's going to come out of.
1: Yeah, exactly. The best music comes when you're having fun. And so it's it's almost like the best thing you can do for yourself is to not be critical while you're writing. It's like allowing that critical side of your brain to come in is almost not like because you would think that oh well if i'm being critical i'm gonna write better music and it's yeah. like not necessarily like you might just be stopping yourself from getting into that flow state and making what might have been like the best song you've ever made because you were worried that you know user 569 <laughs> on soundcloud is going to be like well uh, i've heard that progression before or that's a sultan drum loop or just something that like the average listener would not care about you know <laughs> yeah yeah so thinking about what your target audience is, is it trying to
0: impress producers on Reddit or is it trying to produce or trying to impress just general fans? Yeah,
1: like are you are you trying to make something for the super critic online or are you trying to write something for yourself? And I think that's where you need to draw that distinction.
0: So... I want to kind of uh, switch back to your virtual friends remix uh, your real remix of Drlu's track Virtual Friends that is going to be coming out tomorrow um, I'll play a quick preview of it so people can get a flavor for it <laughs> So first, just kind of talk about how that remix came to be. And then later on, I really want to talk about those lead sounds that you have in the drop.
1: Yeah. So um, we actually, we being myself and my manager, um, he actually got an email from Drew's management that was just like, hey, you know, we're putting this remix back together for the album. Um, If you want to get involved, we'd love to have you on it. Uh, Let us know what song you'd like to do. And, you know, listening through all the songs, I think both of us immediately agreed. Virtual Friends is, you know, my favorite song off of it personally and you know the topic yeah i mean the topic of the song as well i think is something we can all relate to or at least i can definitely relate to um especially with how things are right now you know we're all sitting around at home you know kind of on our phones and it's like man like i would love to like not feel like i'm being like ruled by technology necessarily and i think that that concept of the song itself was really interesting to me and the vocal line really got my attention as well so, you know, I really connected with it on that level. And the first thing I did when I wanted to start writing is I'm like, well, and this is the same thing I do with every remix I do that has a, voc- a vocal is I grab the vocal and I put it in completely just as is. And then I just start trying yeah. to harmonize it or reharmonize it. And I find that's like mm-hmm. the best way for me to get going, at least. Um, I knew immediately when I had the vocal in there, I'm like, well, I want to have this section of the intro where it, you know, it builds up and then it just cuts down to like nothing. It's just like this like electric piano and the voice and i you know added that little vocoder bit afterwards but uh, i think it's really important to get that core element of the song yeah like is the progression good you know is it matching the vocals because i didn't want to like go in and immediately make a build up and a drop because then it's like well is that gonna pair with the introduction like i don't necessarily think so so that was where i started with it and then i kind of went from there and kept building it up and you know eventually got to that drop section it was like well everything that i've wrote so far is telling me this should be melodic so let's make it melodic you know it's not like i because there's part of me that's like well you know it would be cool if i gave this song like a really really like heavy remix but that's like you kind of get to a point where you've been writing it and it's like well i'm not going to scrap what i've written and rewrite it clearly my brain is taking me in this direction for a reason so yeah it ended up at that drop section um if you want to talk about those synths we could definitely go into that
0: yeah Yeah, before we do that, I think just to kind of reiterate what you were talking about, the idea that you maybe had an idea in mind of what you wanted to do with that drop section being like a heavier remix to it, but you also just kind of saw what vibe you could do with that vocal by itself and saw, hey, this isn't what I initially thought I was going to do with this remix, but this is cool. Let's see where it goes.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to what I've been talking about with the flow state of everything. You know, it's great to have an idea going in, but I don't think it... I think almost never do I start a song with an idea going in and then come out with the exact idea I had in my head. It's like, yeah. you have an idea in your head, and once you start working, um, you might find that you're going in a different direction, or maybe you're going off that idea, but it sounds a little different than what you had in mind. But I mean, yeah. I think what matters is, do you like it or not? And I liked what I had, and I you know, wanted to keep going, and I wanted to make sure that you know what I was writing was... Um, it fit with the original song idea, you know?
0: Yeah. It's like, it's both learning to let go of what your expectations are and also learning to push through to see what you can get out of an idea. Like, I feel like those are kind of conflicting forces, but if you can control them, you can get out better music in the process. Yeah, definitely. So um, let's dive into kind of the sound design for that drop. I just played People It. Talk about your process for creating those main lead sounds.
1: Yeah, so... It's actually pretty interesting. Um, The combination of uh, synths and that drop, I think it's a group of four synths I have there. One of them is literally just a square wave that has like an FM saw going into it. And that FM saw is an octave up and a fifth up. So immediately you're getting that harmonization just from that one synth. Um, So I started with the bass line, just like the sub bass, and then that synth just getting that chord progression going. Um, figuring out how that would sound and then from there i had a lead synth that i had made um for a song that never came out like three years ago and i pulled that (laughs) in and it worked super well with that i had a like little deeper bass actually exactly what i was talking about earlier getting like a saw bass and then having like a wobbling thing on top of it so that's exactly what's happening in that song it's another patch from another unreleased song that i have um which i think that'll one will actually come out but it's this little like deep rumbling bass and is playing at i believe like a 16th note triplet and so it's giving it a little bit of texture in that low mid low range of the synth and then underneath yeah. all that i have like i know some people call it like a poop saw or something it's just like uh <laughs> i know, get what you mean yeah really distorted like the fart saw, yeah, yeah exactly i have one of those going on at the very bottom and i think it's called like a halftime synth and that as well is another sound that i made in another song another sound design session and so I found that all of those put together gave me this really full um really full synth together and you know you couldn't have made that as like one patch like maybe you could have but I, it would have been really complicated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's all about that layering and making sure that you know it came together with the sub and I found that everything just it just happened to sit really well together and mm-hmm. so ran with it.
0: Uh-huh. That's awesome. Um, any, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but um, any insight on those kind of like, uh, like fill base shots that you have in between that main syn stack?
1: Yeah, those are uh, a lot of those are actually what I was talking about before um, taking samples from Splice and really stretching them out and messing with them. Um, yeah. I, think, I think the first one is like a combination of two um, patches, not patches, uh, two sounds from Sultan's pack one of them okay. is like a bass hit and i took it and i reversed it and stretched it out and i think added some like auto pen and the other one is like a fully little hit and those put together gave me a really interesting sound um i also used a neuro shot that i had made um a really long time ago and pulled yeah. that in and you know used some reverse reverb effects and all that but basically what i was trying to do is i was like okay well you know, I want these bass sounds, but at the end of the day, I just wanted to sound really cool. And so yeah. <laughs> that's the sounds that sounds I thought really interesting. And I'm like, well, I know how to make them weirder and make them my own. So I'm going to do that. And so that was a lot of what I did. It wasn't um serum. It was a lot of audio samples that I was resampling and putting effects on.
0: I think that's like a super, I don't know, just... A really good workflow where for some of the less important sounds, like I would say the most important sound is that synth stack that you really spent some time crafting, but for more incidental effects and kind of one shots, just using samples and then building off of those because, you know, the fact that you're using somebody else's marimba and then just reverbed it out on the downbeat doesn't really matter. So you still get that idea of I've got my own creative touch on it, but I'm also being efficient using some already Uh, Some samples that already have some processing, just so I can get this idea actually done and finished.
1: Yeah, exactly. And if you're one of those producers that's like, well, you know, I want this to all be my own sounds. You can still totally do that. And you know, that's why I like to have a library of some previous sounds that I've made rendered out, so that I can always pull from those if I, you know, have that same thought of like, maybe I want this to be all my own sounds, and I don't want to have a sample for every reason. Yeah, I mean, you can still have that workflow without having to rely on sample libraries. You know, this these workflow effects could be used whether or not um, that's the kind of producer that you want to be.
0: So, I've got one more production-related question. Even just listening to your music from the first released uh, first release that you had in this project to the ones that you're releasing now, I see a big level up in the quality of the mixing. Do you feel like there's anything that you've picked up in the past few years that has really accelerated your ability to craft a big, full and clean mix?
1: Yeah, I think the biggest thing for me was realizing that, you know, less is more. Um yeah. when I was originally starting, I was putting like a lot of reverb on like every single sound and layering like six cents together for everything I was doing. Uh, making these like, you know, really textured sounds, they're definitely very interesting to me. But when the time came to mix it and make it sound like a final song i ran into a lot of trouble with making that all work and i think the reverb was the biggest culprit of all that so cutting back on reverb unless it was absolutely necessary was definitely a big part of that um allowing those sounds to be up front in the mix you know not subconsciously masking those sounds that maybe weren't as uh polished as the other ones so i think yeah because that's definitely what happens you know you have you have like three synths and you know one of them is maybe not that good. And so you reverber it out and pull it really far down. Yeah. And it's like, does it even need to be there? Like yeah. really? So I think picking good synths to start with, you know, making sure the ideas mm-hmm. are good, realizing less is more has allowed me to mix a lot better. because um, you just have less information going on. And that yeah. allows you to um everything that you have is something that you know you want to be there. And it's really apparent to the audience because it's up front and it's, you know, it's loud in the mix because, you know, you don't have like eight other sounds going on that are, you know, burying it. And yeah, yeah I would say that has been the most helpful thing with mixing. You know, I was cut down on my like hi-hat uh cymbal sounds and all that. They sort of just like wash out the top end, you know, yeah. cut down <laughs> on some of my uh synth layering in the, the breaks and such. I still layer a yeah. lot of synths, but, you know, I try to make sure that, you know, I add each one with purpose and I'm not just, you know, well, that sound isn't interesting enough. Um, instead of picking a different one, let me pick four more and put them on top, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. I feel like that's an easy trap to fall into in Omnisphere too, because oh, there 100%. are four other great sounds in it. And then yeah. you're like, I do not need four Rhodes pianos, Connor.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I definitely, not, since I've had that in the last like couple months, I've definitely noticed that too, so. There'll be a yeah. lot of, I write a bunch and then maybe I delete like half of what I wrote just because I'm like, this is way too much stuff going on. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Got to pick an idea at the end of the day.
0: <laughs> cool. Um, so a few more questions and we'll kind of wrap things up. Um, this is your fifth year in the Slippy Project. Reflecting back, do you have one or two really cool experiences or moments that you've had so far with this project that, I don't know, you just look back on as kind of more, one of your more favorite moments that you've had so far with, this, with music in general?
1: yeah i mean i think one of the coolest moments i had was um i think the summer that summer after wi-fi tears came out i went up to vancouver for a couple weeks um to just make some music be with uh, the guys at monster cat um people at monster cat yeah and just be up there and you know at the end of that trip we all went to shambhala which is a really fantastic music festival Um, happens every year you know it's legendary and you know if you know anything about Shambhala, you probably know about, you know, Excisions, Shambhala mm-hmm. mixes. I definitely listen to those a lot. And so, of course, being there and knowing that he had been playing the song out at the time, I was like, well, I need to go to his set. And so, you know, we went over there and we were there and you know, the whole set every once in a while. I'd be like, is that the song? Like, is it, is you mixing <laughs> it in right now? And just like, eventually at one point, you know, he mixed the song in and it was just so crazy because you're standing in this crowd and you have like a couple thousand people around you. And you're like, this is my song. Like, yeah. what? And it's just, that was insane <laughs> to me. And I was, you know, that's definitely a moment I look back on and I think that's really, really cool. And I was, yeah. you know, happy to have been able to have that moment. Um, that was definitely one of them. I would say another one was um, getting some music and some video games recently. You know, having a song yeah. in Rocket League is awesome. That's like one of the biggest games at the time. It still is one of the biggest games. And it's just really mm-hmm. interesting. I think it's really cool having my music be a part of the legacy of these games as well yeah um and you know with Beat Saber being a rhythm game that was very exciting for me too I played like so much Guitar Hero 3 growing (laughs) up like I definitely like attribute that to being part of the reason I'm making music in general just because I was like I found it very influential just in the music I was listening to um and they also had a bit of an online community as well um yeah so it's cool being a part of you know in a way is something that I thought helped me when I was first starting out with music. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that. So, uh, one last question,
0: what's going to be coming up for you in the next year to six months?
1: Yeah. Um, right now I've been writing a lot, a lot of music. Um, I think my playlist of unreleased is maybe like 18 tracks or so. (laughs) Um, so right now, yeah, at the moment, we're kind of finding a home for everything, finding out, Where all these tracks are going, figuring out release plans and stuff, Um, I can almost uh, say that we have something that's going to be coming out. I think in the next couple months. um, I don't want to fully confirm that, but um, there will be some music on the way for sure. Um, We're in talks with some vocalists um, that I'm really been interested in working with to get them on some music. Um, And yeah, I'm just looking forward to putting out some of my favorite music so far and uh, kind of expanding what the slippy project is i think awesome
0: sweet well with that we wrap things up for this episode you can all find slippy's music in the description of this podcast so go give it a listen as this podcast is just about over alex it's been great chatting with you and i appreciate you being on the show
1: thanks for having me connor great talking to you